Join us on October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time for the Commonwealth Club Gala as we celebrate outstanding community advocates who, through incredible acts of service and long-standing leadership in their communities, embody the theme of Stand By Me. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club and World Affairs program. I'm Ray Suarez, host of World Affairs on KQED. It's my pleasure to introduce Reza Aslan, author of An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Reza was born in Iran, is an acclaimed writer, producer, and religious scholar. His best-selling books have been translated into dozens of languages with millions of copies sold around the world. In his latest book, Reza chronicles the life of Howard Baskerville and how his death propelled the democratic revolution in the early 1900s in Tehran. A reminder to our audience, we encourage you to submit your questions for Reza in the text chat on YouTube. Reza, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. Good to see you. Let me start off by asking you about the man at the center of the book, the young Howard Baskerville. Today, there are Americans and Europeans fighting in Ukraine on the side of the Kiev government. Americans headed to Spain in the 1930s to join the international brigades to defend the Spanish Republic and fight Francisco Franco. Uh, before Woodrow Wilson committed the U.S. to the First World War, idealistic young Americans headed to France to fight, even forming an American unit in the young French Air Force. An Argentine physician, Ernesto Guevara, ended up as one of the faces of the Cuban Revolution. Is Baskerville cut from the same stone? Thank you, Ray, and thank you, everyone. I would say probably not. Because, of course, the difference between Howard Baskerville and all those different individuals that you had mentioned is that this was a 22-year-old Christian missionary whose entire assignment was to teach English and preach the gospel. He had, I think, no intention whatsoever of ending up fighting in a, in a revolutionary uh, war um, when he first uh, agreed to go to Persia in 1907. And frankly, it took a, quite some time. He was there for about a year, a little bit more than a year, uh, before he had uh, begun to kind of insert himself into the politics of the revolutionary fervor there. And of course, uh, he was repeatedly told by the church that sent him there, the school that employed him, and the government uh, that you know uh, ruled over him in a sense that whatever was happening in Persia was none of his business. Do you remember when you first learned his name, first knew who he was? You know, I've thought about this a lot. I, I've, I've gotten this question a lot, and I actually don't know the answer to it. I feel like it's just a story that I've always known. I think that my generation of Iranians uh, is probably the last generation uh, for whom Howard Baskerville was just kind of a household name since the 79 revolution. Um, any real memory of Howard Baskerville and what he did in 1907, 1908, 1909, uh, when he was in Tabriz, has more or less been wiped from the collective consciousness. But I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, there were schools in Tehran named Howard Baskerville. There were streets named Howard Baskerville. From what I understand from my friends in, in Iran, there are, there are still a, a series of very popular coffee shops, apparently, in Tehran that are still called Howard Baskerville. But I can't for the life of me imagine that the young people in those coffee shops sipping lattes have any idea who the coffee shop was actually named after. Did his story sing to you right from the beginning? Uh, you, you talk about him being sort of the background furniture of your uh, of your mind uh, when did it occur to you that wow this is this is cool <laughs> yeah that's a very good question well in some ways i have to be honest and say that 
this is the kind of story that has always animated me uh, as a person, as a writer, as a scholar, and a thinker. I am drawn to people who, when confronted with an intolerable situation, put their faith into practice and actually do something about that intolerable situation. And I mean, you know, a lot of people have said, well, most of your previous books have been about religious history, but what I just described is the story of Moses, is the story of Jesus, it's the story of Muhammad. Uh, individuals who use their faith to enact radical change in the world, change for the good. And so in many ways, uh, you know, obviously the story of basketball is quite different than the stories of these great religious leaders that I have written about in the past. But in some ways, the arc of his life, the, the actions that he took, and certainly the consequences uh, and the legacy of those actions, reminds me a lot of those great prophetic characters. Well, you know, religion is never very far from this story anyway. Um, the young Princeton man, a Westerner, uh, thought of himself as a Woodrow Wilson protege, but was born to church work. He didn't even want to go to Persia in the first place, did he? No, he most definitely did not. Uh, he graduated from Princeton with a degree in Christian ministry in 1907. He had a choice before him. He could have just gone back to South Dakota and taken up the profession of his father and his grandfather and his brother, which is just to become a, a Presbyterian preacher. Um, but he wanted to see the world. He wanted to have an adventure. And so he applied to become a, a Presbyterian missionary and teacher. And what he really wanted to do was to go to China and Japan. That's, that's what, in his application to the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions, he makes it very clear that he feels as though God is calling him to the Far East. But at the same time, he also understood that the church was actively looking for young Christian men and women like himself to, uh, to spread the gospel to, the, to, quote, the lost sheep of the Middle East. And so knowing that it would be much easier for him uh, if he had Persia as an option, he wrote in very small letters uh, above China and Japan on his application, he wrote, or Persia. And I think he was hoping that maybe it would uh, not be noticed, but it was. And that's where he was assigned. And you know, he had been reading a lot of really awful things uh, being said by missionaries who were posted in Persia, uh, talking about the country being, um, you know, full of uh, deceitful people and the culture being uh, ruinous and the religion itself, the, the solid wall of Mohammedanism, as it was referred to uh, by a lot of missionaries. Uh, being the toughest work for any missionary in the region. So I, I'd have to uh, guess that when he got assigned to Persia, he went there quite reluctantly. But the wonderful sort of end of this story is that when he arrived in the northwest city of Tabriz, he really discovered that all of those you know, dispiriting missionary reports that he had read were wrong. He completely fell in love with the country, the culture, the people. Uh, as, I, as I read in the book, he, he fell in love with the food, the Persian cuisine, which was a, a revelation uh, to a, a Midwestern uh, um, boy from uh, Nebraska. And I think that almost instantly, he became absolutely immersed in uh, Persian culture and Persian tradition. Let's talk a little bit more about what American Presbyterians were doing there. As you mentioned, their accounts of what they were up against, the work they were doing, the privations, the difficulty, the health challenge, are, well, dispiriting reading. Teaching people to read and write is a good deed. Teaching them history is a good deed. Helping them in their suffering and struggles models Jesus. But did they actually ever convert anybody? The Presbyterians were working hard at great personal risk for decades in a place where conversion is called apostasy. It's pretty risky for the preacher 
and for the convert. You're absolutely right. And, you know, the short answer to the question of uh, how successful were they was not that successful, actually. (laughs) But they also understood this, Ray. Um, You know, the mission that uh, Baskerville joined in 1907 had only been around for about 50, 60 years or so. And um, it's called the West Persia Mission. And those early missionaries, the first American missionaries to to be sent uh, to Persia, were very specifically told not to spread the gospel or to evangelize to Muslims just yet. As you rightly say, uh, such conversions were uh, illegal. And what they really wanted to focus on was the indigenous Christian communities uh, in uh, Persia. So we're talking about the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, Nestorians, uh, Armenian Christians, these sort of ancient Middle Eastern Christian communities, some of which trace their lineage all the way back to the apostles. And the first missionaries that came to Persia were the children of the Second Great Awakening, this period of Protestant revival in the United States that ultimately gives birth to what we now refer to as evangelical Christianity. And their primary mission, not just in Persia, but throughout the Middle East, was not so much to convert Muslims to Christianity. It was to convert Middle Eastern Christians to American Christianity. Uh, they, they were there to, as they put it, um, rid these communities of their superstitions and to uh, convi- convince them to adapt their particular brand of Christianity to this kind of revivalist, Protestant, evangelical form of Christianity that these young missionaries had um, entered the Middle East with. But when you read the the missionary uh, files, it's very clear that this was ultimately a strategy to convert the Muslim population. The idea was that if they can convert these indigenous Christian communities to evangelical Christianity, then those converts would become essentially the bridge to Muslim conversion. They would become the, uh, the, the mouthpiece, if you will, for the American church, um, and they would have an easier time reaching their Muslim brethren than these white evangelical Christians from Nebraska would. I got to tell you, the book sometimes reads like an adventure novel for boys of the late 19th century. And when I say that, I mean it in the best possible way. Harrowing travel, charismatic rogues, treacherous leaders, the mysterious East, and the very upright, straight-arrow hero who loves and loses the girl. It's got it all, but it's also a reminder of just how hard a place the world was at the turn of the last century. It really was, and particularly in Persia at the time. Of course, you know, we're talking about disease. Um, many, many missionaries lost their lives to a host of diseases at the time. Many missionaries lost the lives of their children to those disease. We're talking about a kind of old west frontier region when you're talking about the western areas of Iran where uh, these missionaries were posted. Uh, a lawless region um, a region where you had all kinds of different um, uh, bandits and and highway robbers and and so you know it really was a dangerous dangerous assignment and it led to a, an enormous amount of hardship and suffering and it's really fascinating to me of course because. You know, we in the modern world, I mean, I think a lot of people probably have their own impressions of of missionaries and and missionary work. I certainly do. Um, But I, I think at the same time, it's hard to ignore the fact that these missionaries at great risk to themselves and to their children uh, did the important work of building schools and building hospitals, uh, uh, teaching the indigenous population. Yes, they were there 
for the ultimate goal of saving souls, of converting uh, indigenous Christians and Muslims to their brand of Christianity. And, and we can think whatever we'd like about that. I'm sure there's a whole host of different opinions about uh, that kind of missionary work. But one can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, they, they were willingly sacrificing themselves to serve a population that they didn't really have any connection with. And, you know, it's a, it, it leads to a lot of complex thoughts and feelings about the entire enterprise. I'll tell you that. Well, I think we should talk a little about the conflict Baskerville found himself in the middle of. Persia, as Iran was then called, was hemmed in, immersed in a tug of war between rival powers, the decaying Ottoman Empire, Tsarist Russia, Imperial Britain, all nibbling at the edges of the Persian state, vying for power and influence with the then Shah. Set the table for us. The place names may be familiar from recent news, uh, from the 40 years since the Iranian Revolution, from the dissolution of the Soviet Union, even from America's long involvement in Iraq. You know, the early 20th century was a time of revolutions. Um, We were seeing these uh, uprisings taking place in China, in Russia, um, in the Ottoman Empire, obviously, in Mexico. And certainly what was happening in Iran in the early 20th century falls very much in that larger category. This was a time and era of constitutionalism. And this notion that um, people should have a say in the decisions that ruled their lives. In Persia, in around 1905 or so, a group of young, zealous revolutionaries, uh, backed by business interests in the country and the clerical establishment, began pouring out onto the streets, demanding the writing of a constitution, a document that would outline the rights and privileges of all citizens in the country and an elected parliament that would have the ability not just to pass legislation, but more importantly, to curb the unchecked power and authority of the Shah, the the king of Iran at the time, a man by the name of Muzaffar ad-Din. It took a while. It took a a year of of bloody street protests and, and, and revolutionary fervor. But eventually, in December of 1906, the Shah um, acquiesced. He signed uh, the Constitution, a very progressive document, frankly. Um, And then he also allowed for the election of a parliament. And then a few days later, he died. (laughs) And his son, a 35-year-old man by the name of Muhammad Ali Shah, uh, took the throne. And this was a man who was raised to believe that the throne was his by right, that God had given Persia to him as his personal property, and he was incensed with his father for having allowed for the curbing of that absolute authority. And starting in 1907, he began first uh, behind the scenes and then much more openly by the end of that year to fight back against the constitutionalists, um, using, as you rightly say, the support that he was being given by primarily the Russian Empire. Um, By the end of 1907, uh, what had begun as a revolution for a constitution and a parliament had become more or less a civil war between those Iranians who supported the Shah, the royalists as they were referred to, and those who supported the constitution, the nationalists. And really, by the time you get to the early parts of 1908, The Shah, using his Russian-trained, Russian-funded, Russian-commanded military, had managed to seize control over most of uh, the country, with the exception of this one city in the northwest, the city of Tabriz, the city that Howard Baskerville had just recently arrived in. And, And the city that Baskerville arrived in had at that point become essentially the last bastion of the revolution. It was where all the revolutionaries had gathered and regrouped and begun to kind of reformulate their demands about this this revolution to create a true people's army that 
was able to, for quite some time, repel the Shah's forces. And they actually set up Tabriz as a kind of um, opposition capital, if you will, to Tehran. They sent out letters to all the capitals of Europe and North America, stating in no uncertain terms that because the constitution existed only in Tabriz, that Tabriz was now the government of Iran and not Tehran. And that any deal that any foreign government would make with the Shah would be considered illegitimate once the the constitutionalists uh, regained the country. As you can imagine, Ray, this, uh, these notes, these letters were responded to uh, with kind of, they were dismissed. Let's just put it that way. I think, I think people sort of laughed at them until, you know, you start getting to 1909 when Tabriz is still around and it's not going anywhere. And it seems more and more likely that the Shah is simply not going to be able to use his military to simply conquer the, the city uh, and thus the country back to the crown. Well, the stage is now set for our hero, young Princeton man, Howard Baskerville. A passionate or charismatic teacher can certainly rub off on his students. In this case, did his students, now caught up in the winds of conflict and change in their country, rub off on him? Very much so. You know, I, I try to think about what his mindset was. As you rightly say, he was a, a, a politically savvy individual. He had spent a year studying international law and jurisprudence with none other than Woodrow Wilson at Princeton University. Um, you know, he was a, a, a very pious and, and passionate young man. Um, he surely understood what was at stake in the revolution that he had suddenly stepped into. At the same time, you know, he is tasked with teaching English and, and American history at this school. So he is quite literally teaching these children the history of the American Revolutionary War while there's literally a revolution taking place outside of the gates of the school. And I think the hypocrisy of that experience starts to get to him and little by little he begins inserting himself into the into the politics of Tabriz. He asks his students questions. He 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 dines with them at their homes, at their parents' homes. Um, he begins to take food to the front lines of of the the Revolutionary Army. He has these long conversations with these friends that he makes. The school that he taught at, the American Memorial School, had a fairly sizable number of Persian faculty, many of whom were deeply engaged in the revolution. And so, you know, it's not as though he didn't understand what was going on there. And he unquestionably sympathized with it. But again, it didn't matter because as the school kept telling him, he is there to teach. That's what he's there for. As the church kept telling him, his job is to save souls, not lives. That's what he is there for. And as the U.S. government kept telling him, this is a foreign conflict. It has nothing to do with you. And so he tried very hard to put his head down and, you know, do what was asked of him. But by the time we get to the winter of 1909 and the Shah's military changes tactics. They, they realize they can't just simply defeat Tabriz militarily any longer. And so they decide instead to encircle the city and uh, create a blockade, cutting off all food and water to the city. And what follows at that point is this very pivotal moment in Iranian history, a moment that is still taught in every high school in Iran called the Siege of Tabriz, a, a horrific human rights crisis, uh, a humanitarian crisis, I should say, where thousands and thousands of people were dying of starvation on the streets. And I think that that was the moment where something just snapped in Baskerville. He, he couldn't take it any longer. He couldn't hold on to this sort of demand that was being made by, uh, of him to stay out of it. And one day he walks into his classroom and he says to his students that 
he can't teach them anymore, that the only way he knows to continue to serve the people that he has come to love in this country is to give up his teaching job, to abandon his missionary post, ultimately to even give up his American citizenship and to go fight for them. And as you rightly say, when you were talking about, you know, this has got all, all the, uh, you know, elements that you need for some great Hollywood uh, drama, when he tells his students this, they stand up and join him on the battlefield. They actually, his students leave with him. So here he is now, this, uh, you know, 23-year-old missionary and, and teacher as some kind of demented Pied Piper <laughs> taking these teenagers out of school and forming a, a militia inside the larger revolutionary movement fighting against the Shah uh, for the freedom of Iran. I'm glad you use the phrase demented Pied Piper because he doesn't only join their army. He becomes a commander, trains soldiers, um, schools himself on tactics. It seems dashing, idealistic, romantic, but also kind of shockingly foolhardy. Foolhardy is definitely the right word for it. And it's, I should mention, you know, Howard Baskerville had no military training to speak of. Uh, you know, there were some questions about whether he, before he'd, he'd left for Persia, whether he had some military training, but I've seen no, no evidence or proof of that at all. Um, there are a number of stories, quite humorous, uh, that he was using the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica in order to learn uh, drilling techniques and bomb-making techniques, uh, which, again, shows sort of that, that idealistic naivete that he, he represents. At the same time, however, the, the revolutionary army that he joined instantly recognized the importance of having a young American join this revolution. I, I should mention that this wasn't just a Persian army. At the time, this was the most successful and popular anti-imperialist uh, revolution in the world. And so revolutionaries from all over the world had come to Tabriz to join the fight against the Shah. There were Russians and Georgians and Turks and Armenians. There were Jews and Christians, Baha'is, Zoroastrians, Buddhists, uh, Muslims, both Sunni and Shia. This was truly a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-religious revolutionary force that had been formed uh, to fight in this battle against the Shah. And it included one American. And in a sense, that American, despite the fact that he had very little skills, I would say, as an actual fighter, was perhaps the most valuable member of that revolution because his decision to join this fight um, got a lot of attention. There were front page stories in the London Independent and in the New York Times. American defends Tabriz. And it's important to note that the revolutionaries had been begging the United States for help throughout this long fight against the Shah. But the American government had decided very early on in this revolution that it could have nothing to do with this conflict, not because of any vested interests that the U.S. government had in Persia. It had no interests at the time, really anywhere in the Middle East in 1907, but because, as this internal State Department memo laid out very clearly, they just thought that the whole thing was foolhardy, that the idea that there could be a democracy in a Muslim-majority state was absurd. Islam seems to imply autocracy, a State Department memo uh, read. And so therefore, since this thing had no hope, no chance of succeeding, the United States government and certainly no American citizen could have anything to do with what, uh, this, this fight. So having an American and an American Christian missionary, no less, join the fight was a boon. And so... I think partly why he was elevated to this command position is because I think everyone really understood the propaganda value of having Baskerville as a revolutionary in this fight against the Shah. You mentioned that it's his um, open sympathy for the constitutionalists 
is seen with rising alarm, both by his Presbyterian missions boss and by the American consul in Tabriz. As he makes a public break, puts on a uniform, carries a gun, where does this leave the U.S. government and his church sponsors? Well, they are, to put it in the simplest terms, freaking out. <laughs> I mean, the American government, of course, you know, they can't have a one of their citizens fighting in what they consider to be a foreign war. That is technically illegal, believe it or not. Um, and so they tried very, very hard to convince Baskerville to give up this uh, fight and to return home. The American consul general actually at one point goes to Baskerville in the training grounds uh, where the revolutionaries were were practicing drills and, and formations and says to him in no uncertain terms, this is not your fight. This is not your country. These are not your people. You have to stop what you're doing and go home. And Baskerville very famously responds, the only difference between me and these people is the place of my birth. And that is a very small difference. And he actually hands over his passport. And so now that he's no longer under the control of the American government, uh, the State Department doesn't know what else to do. So, of course, they contact the church that sent him there in the first place. They send a urgent memo to the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions, essentially saying Baskerville has given up the protection of the American government, so we don't have any control over him any longer. You are the ones who sent him there. You're responsible for, for his actions. And for the church, this is an existential crisis, Ray. I mean, they can't, they can't let it be known uh, that one of their missionaries might possibly take up arms against the government in which they are served. That would be the end of the Presbyterian missionary enterprise altogether. And in a, to this day, baffling, baffling move, the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions sends a very brief memo back to the State Department, essentially saying, Baskerville's not one of ours. He is technically not a missionary. He's actually a teacher at a mission school. And so, therefore, not our problem. <laughs> and we disavow his actions and, uh, you know, basically, please don't contact us again. <laughs> and the State Department, as you can imagine, reads this memo and they are baffled by it. They don't understand what the difference is, first of all, between a missionary and a teacher at a missionary school. And they also really don't get sort of uh, how how to respond to a, a church that has essentially washed its hands of this entire affair. And after that, Baskerville really has nothing left connecting him either to the school or to the church or to the government. And he is now free to join fully into this revolutionary cause. Well, it felt like doom was written all over this mission. And not only because the word martyr is in your book's title, Baskerville's unit tries a daring action to break the siege of Tabriz by forces loyal to the Shah. Tell us about it. So by April 20th, 1909, there is no more food left in the city. And thousands have already starved. There's a very dramatic um, article in the New York Times that essentially says either Either thousands more will die from the siege or 10,000 will die trying to break the siege. And I think that's really the calculus in the city as well, that if they continue to just try to hold out against the siege, that they're all going to die anyway. So they might as well die trying to, to break the siege. And so on the morning of April 20th, um, Baskerville and his student militia about – 11 or 12 people in all, um, decide to go on this, well, you could call it foolhardy, you could call it brave, you could call it suicidal. Um, but it's a mission to try to break through one point of the siege in the sort of western uh, part of the siege. 
um, and to get food and assistance to the starving inhabitants of the city. As you can imagine, the fight does not last very long. Baskerville gets shot in the heart and dies, but his death becomes a kind of galvanizing moment. And certainly the, uh, the horrific humanitarian crisis in the city, which is starting to get a lot of international attention on the, on the heels of this you know, sudden news story that hits the, the wires, an American is killed in this, in this battle, becomes such an embarrassment, not to the Shah, the Shah couldn't care less, but it becomes such an embarrassment to the Russian Empire that the Tsar decides it's time to intervene. He forces the Shah to declare a temporary ceasefire, to allow food and provisions and assistance to enter the city. And the revolutionaries use that temporary ceasefire to march on Tehran and to bring the Shah down from his throne and send him into exile. The constitution is reestablished. The uh, parliament is rebuilt. Um, there are new elections. And amongst the first acts of the new parliament is to declare this young Christian missionary from Nebraska to be not just a national hero, they call him the American Lafayette, but to call, they call him a martyr in this traditional Shia sense of a shaheed, someone who sacrificed himself for justice for, so that others may live. He's entombed in this sort of beautiful marble tomb in the city of Tabriz. They make this gorgeous uh, golden bust of, of him and they put it in, a, in the Constitution House, this museum dedicated to the Constitutional Revolution. And for decades, decades, uh, that tomb was a kind of pilgrimage site for a lot of Iranians who would gather there on the anniversary of his death to pay homage to the American who died fighting for freedom in Iran. But as I say, really since the 79 revolution, that memory has been more or less wiped clean. It's, it's very hard, I would say, to find anyone at, under the age of 50 in Iran who still knows who Howard Baskerville is. Did his death get much attention in the United States? It sounds like it was a hinge point in Persia. Um, did the same papers that breathlessly chronicled the fact that he had joined the war uh, pay just as much attention when he died? As a matter of fact, no. Uh, indeed, I have a, uh, a memo, that I, a telegram, I'm sorry, that I, that I uh, dug up uh, written by the American legate in Tehran, so the sort of a pre-ambassador, if you will, um, to the State Department, in which he says, in no uncertain terms, Mr. Baskerville's death seems to have simplified matters. I think that his death allowed not just the American government, but also the Presbyterian mission to breathe deeply and think, okay, uh, crisis averted. We don't, we don't have to worry about this anymore. It's a, it's a tragedy, but it's now over. And I think that both the church and the government had a vested interest in making sure that this story did not become very well known. Because as I say, although you know, the memory of Howard Baskerville has been more or less lost in Iran, it was never here in the first place in the United States. It was almost impossible to find anyone in America who had heard about Howard Baskerville, save for you know a few academics and, and Iran history enthusiasts. And that's a big part of why I wanted to write this book, because I think that there is so much that we can learn from the actions of this young man, that his story has incredible resonance today, not just in America, but in Iran as well. And that this is a name that needs to be resurrected because, you know, now more than ever, what he died for, the, the freedom of, of people that you don't have a contact with, right? People that, as the American consulate said, aren't your people. 
the fact that this is a man who was willing to die for that so that they could have what he took for granted uh, is, I think, not just an inspiring story at any time, but certainly in this particular time when democracies and retreat all over the world, including here in the United States, when we are really asking ourselves, what do we owe? What do we owe other people, people who belong to a different nationality or a different religion? What is it that connects us together? Um, as we're seeing these incredible uh, images coming from Iran of you know young men and women dying for the exact same rights that Howard Baskerville and his students uh, died for 115 years ago, I think his legacy is more important today than it ever was. I'm glad you remind us that the the sort of emanations, the ripples that come out from that time in that part of the world are still with us today. But World War I is calamitous. I, I had kind of hoped that the centennial of the war would have sent people back to hitting the books and paying more attention. It didn't quite work out that way. Even if Tabriz felt far from the action in World War I, the Tsarist Empire has a revolution. The Tsar and his family are killed and replaced by the Bolsheviks. The Ottoman Empire on uh, Tabriz's other flank collapses. The Caliphate ends. The secular, secularizing Young Turks take over. Britain and France dig their hooks even deeper into the post-Ottoman Middle East. What happens in the ensuing decades to Persia, which I guess stops being Persia in short order? With the success of the revolution in 1909, Iran becomes, very briefly, a constitutional monarchy. It is a, a country with a kind of figurehead monarch, um, but a country in which an elected parliament uh, and uh, makes all the decisions, runs the, the, the finances of the country, uh, passes the laws. You really have kind of the dream, the dream that, that had launched this revolution four years earlier. And then the war begins. And very quickly, Iran becomes one of the primary staging grounds of that conflict for the British and the Russians. The end of the war uh, results in enormous devastation in Iran, both uh, economically, socially, politically. And as we in the United States have come to learn uh, over the last few years, in those kinds of moments, uh, democracy becomes very messy, right? It becomes very difficult for the elected leaders of the country to come together and, and unite on a path forward that would um, deal with all these varying crises that post-war Iran is dealing with. And in that vacuum of power steps this military commander by the name of Reza Khan, who uh, in 1921 is encouraged by uh, the British government, who had quite recently discovered oil in the south of the country, I should mention, to uh, march his troops into Tehran and to declare a military coup, which he does. The constitution is suspended. The parliament is defanged. And after a few years of a, a military dictatorship, Reza Khan de declares himself to become the next Shah of Iran. He starts a brand new um, dynasty, the Pahlavi dynasty. He becomes known as Reza Shah Pahlavi. The end of the second or the beginning of the Second World War, because the Allied powers uh, were uh, annoyed with Reza Shah for refusing to join the Allies and indeed for making some very friendly overtures to uh, Nazi Germany. The British remove Reza Shah from power and replace him with his son, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. And of course, as anyone who is familiar with Persian history knows, that is the last Shah of Iran. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi is overthrown in 1979. And ultimately, in, that, in the power vacuum of that revolution, 
we have what we know today, which is the Islamic Republic of Iran, a different form of tyranny, but just another kind of tyranny. And so that hundred-year fight, that hundred-year struggle for freedom in Iran is, depressingly enough, still ongoing today. So we end in a sort of um, ambivalent place. Was there any point to Howard Baskerville's death? Uh, Was it perhaps a, a moment, a marker in a story that's still being written? I can understand that sentiment. But I also think it's important to recognize that the success of the constitutional revolutionaries in 1909 and Baskerville's death was pivotal in that success, created one of the most robust political cultures in the entire Middle East. Iran, as you well know, has had three major revolutions in the 20th century, 1906, 1953, and in 1979. And it is now currently embroiled in what I've referred to as its fourth revolution. And I do think that it's not an exaggeration to say that you can draw a straight line from the activities of those young, zealous revolutionaries clamoring for a constitution and a parliament in 1906 to the young, zealous revolutionaries clamoring not just for their most basic human rights, but an end to uh, the regime in Iran. It's very much the same kind of culture that has infused the Iranian people and that has led not just to these four revolutions, but countless protests and uprisings. I don't know if this current revolution in Iran is going to be successful, but if it is, I don't think it's unfair to say that the legacy of the constitutional revolutionaries 115 years ago or so um, would play a a very significant role in that success. I want to remind our listeners, our virtual audience, wherever you are in the world, uh, to add your questions on the YouTube channel. Uh, I'll be going to questions in just a moment. The Iranian writer Ahmad Khazravi wrote, Young America sacrificed the young Baskerville for the young Iranian constitution. It's a lovely thought. As you mentioned, scores of people have been killed in the protests in recent weeks, and the young Iranian constitution now seems like a pretty remote idea. Are the two countries, the one where you were born and the one where you've made the rest of your life, fated to be at each other's throats, even during a cold peace, snarling at one another across oceans and continents? It's hard. There is a lot of animosity and deep-seated bitterness in both countries. The United States government has every right to see Iran as, you know, um, an opposite pole, if you will. Iran, not just, you know, in 79 with the uh, hostage crisis, but uh, even to this day uh, is actively engaged in foreign policy objectives that are in direct conflict with America's foreign policy and national security interests in the region and in the world. And on the flip side, the Iran, the Iranians have every reason to um, be uh, angry uh, uh, at the United States. I mean, ever since the 1950s, the United States has played a fairly pernicious role in Iranian affairs, starting in 1953 when uh, the CIA actually replaced the Shah back on the throne after the 53 revolution. And certainly, you know, over the decades after that, right up to the uh, revolution of 1979, But I think a more important question isn't will these two governments ever see eye to eye. The more important question is the connections that the Iranian people and the American people have with each other. And I think that's really fundamentally what Howard Baskerville represents. You know, this idea that, as he rightly said, there isn't that much that separates us. We may speak different languages. We may 
worship different gods. We may, uh, you know, have different colored skin. We may have been born in different parts of the world, but fundamentally we all have the same aspirations. We all have the same dreams. I think part of the reason why the current revolution in Iran has really captured the imagination of the world, but especially of Americans is because we recognize ourselves in the people who are willingly dying on the streets uh, in Iran right now for their most basic, for their most fundamental rights. We get it. We understand that call, that cry for freedom and and self-determination. So I've always thought to myself that the people of America and Iran have so much in common with each other. And if both of them could figure out a way to sort of excise the government and you know, all that is entailed in foreign policy and, and all of that stuff, that we would recognize that bond that we have with each other. And perhaps Baskerville can be a bridge for that bond, perhaps. I mean, that might be too much to ask for, you know, a young man who died so long ago. But I do think that it's a very, very uh, opportune time right now for precisely that kind of bridge building. Let me go to some of our excellent questions from the audience. First, was there much, if any, interplay between these missionary organizations and the U.S. government when Baskerville was in Persia? Was the idea of U.S. soft power around yet? Not in the Middle East. In fact, the U.S. government really had no interests whatsoever in the Middle East. They sort of had abandoned it more or less to the British and the Russians, um, and that sort of uh, the intersection of American foreign policy and missionary work, which will become a very key element uh, moving forward in the 20th century, had yet to really uh, take root in 1907. And I should also mention very importantly that the other American missionaries in Tabriz also almost universally sympathized with the revolutionaries. They understood very clearly who the villain in this fight was. They saw the Shah as a murderous tyrant, and they understood the revolutionaries as fighting for freedom and democratic rights. They wrote these long, impassioned letters back to the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions outlining exactly what was going on in Iran. But they also understood that it wasn't their business, that they had they could feed the population, they could care for the population, they could heal the wounded, they could sympathize with the revolution, but that's not what they were there for. And I think the difference between Baskerville and the rest of the missionaries wasn't that he thought differently about the fight. It's that Baskerville truly believed that it was the duty, it was his duty as an American and as a Christian to join this fight. It was his duty as an American to express these universal ideals of freedom and self-determination and to fight for them wherever they, uh, he may be, wherever in the world that, that call was being made. And it was his duty as a Christian to not just talk about what Christ would do but to actually do it, to walk in, in Jesus' footsteps and to willingly sacrifice himself for the lives and the freedom of other people. But that really was the dividing line between him and his fellow missionaries. They all felt the same way. Baskerville wanted to put it into action. As you researched the life and death of Howard Baskerville, was there anything that you learned that surprised you about him? Yes, the the Woodrow Wilson connection. I I was unaware of that. It's a, you know I've I've known the sort of the basic outlines of his story for a very very long time. But when I discovered that not only did he enter Princeton a year after Woodrow Wilson became president of that university, but that he spent his entire junior year taking uh, these electives with Woodrow Wilson, um, it really made his motivations much clearer to me, why he would abandon everything for the cause of another country's freedom. Because, you know, 
as we now know, Woodrow Wilson was a very complicated individual. Uh, he was very clearly an unrepentant racist uh, who enacted horrific racist policies against uh, black people, both as president of uh, Princeton University and as president of the United States. But he also had this very inspiring vision of democracy as God's will for all peoples. And he fed the imagination of his students um, on this idea that the divine will is the freedom of all peoples everywhere and that it was the responsibility of Americans like Baskerville to promote that freedom and to fight for that freedom. And I think this was the mindset that Baskerville had when he went to Tabriz. And it makes it makes it much easier to understand why he would have abandoned everything, including ultimately his life, in order to fight for Iran's democracy. Was there something that you were trying to find out about him that just stubbornly eluded you, even when you had to finish the manuscript? If you had the opportunity to ask Howard Baskerville a question yourself, what would it be? Well, this may be a little bit uh, more personal. So one of the one of the very fascinating stories um, about his life is that he ended up falling in love with the daughter of the schoolmaster, uh, the headmaster, I should say, of the school uh, where he taught. Um, and there was a, a couple of years after his death, there was a report done by the American consul, a sort of a final report, if you will, about the Baskerville affair um, that was done at the behest of the State Department, which wanted to just kind of put the whole thing to rest. And so they sent an investigator to Tabriz who interviewed you know, a, a number of people who knew him, his former students, et cetera, et cetera. And I think primarily what they were trying to understand is why. Why would he have done this? It just – it didn't make any sense to the American government that this young uh, you know, American Christian missionary would abandon everything for this cause. And in that investigation, one of the conclusions that they come to is that he had asked – this um, uh, the, the headmaster's daughter, Agnes, to marry him, which seems to be the case. It seems to be uh, historically accurate. And that the headmaster said no, which also seems historically accurate. And this government report goes on to essentially conclude that, oh, he must have done it out of a broken heart. <laughs> that the huh. reason that he had abandoned his teaching position and his missionary post and his American citizenship and ultimately his life wasn't because he thought it was the right thing to do, but because he was a young man, you know, who had had his heart broken and he wanted to create some kind of grand romantic uh, expression, if you will. I, I've... I've seen no reason to think that that is even remotely true, but I do find it very humorous that these bureaucrats in D.C. trying to sort of crunch the numbers on Baskerville's actions, if you will, to come up with his motivation, uh, came up with that one, a broken heart. Uh, but if if I were able to speak to him, I'd really love to know more about that time. I'll tell you one very, very quick thing that I just discovered. I was at a a, a talk in Salt Lake City, and I ran into uh, – so the, 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 the young girl that he fell in love with was named Agnes Wilson. And I ran into Agnes Wilson's granddaughter who wow. came to the event. And it was a magical moment for me, and we had a long conversation. And she said, you know, one thing that nobody knows is that Agnes had kept a diary – of of that time period and as a researcher my heart just stopped and i said you got to be kidding like i, I mean i wish i had <laughs> known this if anything Book two. yes I, I wish i'd known this i mean is there anything about it and she said well i have to tell you something that's very weird uh, but true which is that i've gone back and looked at that diary 
And the Baskerville years, the two years that Howard Baskerville was in Tabriz while she was there, have been cut out of the diary and are missing. Wow. And I just thought to myself, okay, so if you're asking me, what would I ask? If I could ask Baskerville one question, it would be about that. It would be about that love affair to find out what, what happened. Why is it that, you know, it was excised from the diary and why was it that it became part of this investigation? Um, you know, I, I tried to, to write about it as much as possible in the book, but that's a mystery that, that remains unsolved. We have time for one last question. Are you surprised at how men and women of all ages are mobilizing and protesting in Iran today? No. In fact, as I was saying earlier, there have been very large scattered protests in Iran for months before the death of Masa Jinnah Amini, the Iranian Kurdish woman who was murdered by the morality police, which then sparked this massive feminist uprising that, while still led by women in Iran, has now expanded to include the young and the old, men, women, conservatives, progressives, the religious uh, you know, people, the pious masses in Iran are joining this revolution. We are seeing women dressed head to toe in the chador, the, the conservative Islamic dress, standing side by side with women dressed in jeans and T-shirts and completely unveiled. Everyone calling in a single united voice for the end of this regime. And far from being surprised, I just I thought that it's just a matter of time. This regime lost any credibility or legitimacy that it it sort of had for itself many, many years ago. It has failed in its most basic function, which is the protection of its own citizens. On the contrary, it is now on the streets indiscriminately murdering children, children. We're talking teenagers um, on the streets of Iran. And this has been, in many ways, decades in the making. There have been large-scale protests before. There's no question about that. And those protests have been uh, put down through the use of uh, extreme violence from the government. But this time feels different. These revolutionaries aren't calling for reform. They're not calling even for human rights. They're calling for the end of this government. And I can't see them being satisfied with anything less than that. There is no compromise here for these revolutionaries. Like the, the revolutionaries in 1909, there's really only two choices. You either die just experiencing the status quo or you die putting an end to it. And these revolutionaries have decided that Whatever it takes, however many deaths it takes, they will not give an inch on the streets until this government is gone. And they should have the full support of everyone in the world in that cause. But until there is some sort of conclusion, the frightening possibility remains that as in the past, as you mentioned, the government is always ready to respond with greater and greater violence. So a lot of people may die before this reaches one conclusion or another. That's true. I always remind people that the revolution in 1979 started in 1977. So we're a long ways from uh, achieving the goals of these revolutionaries. But the important thing is that the rest of the world has to pay attention. The United Nations needs to make its voice heard. There needs to be uh, loud and compelling calls for investigations to the uh, human rights violations that the Iranian government has been enacting over the last five weeks of this revolution. And I think the more that the world refuses to turn away from what's happening in Iran, the greater the pressure will be on the Iranian government until at last it just is consigned to the dustbin of history where it belongs. Well, Reza, thanks a lot. Uh, this has been a blast. It feels like we've been talking to each other since we both had dark brown hair. <laughs> yes. So. Oh, I remember those days. 
<laughs> Our thanks to Reza Aslan, author of An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. We encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Reza's book at your local bookstore, or as they say these days, however you buy your books. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.